Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Day Unplugged. It's Tuesday the 9th of June 2020. Mark Pender is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. All prices remain volatile and about at the end of last week was primarily triggered by news of an extra month of output cuts from the OPEC Plus group. However, more generally, their recovery from April's lows reflects hopes that global economy will soon be on the mend. And with that, crucially, will come a pickup in demand. If you're looking for a V-shaped recovery, well, there's already been one in the tech-heavy Nasdaq, which hit a new all-time high last Friday and is still on the way up as we record today. Further signs of a risk on mood can also be seen in the currency markets, where the dollar index has now fallen for three consecutive weeks. But it's not all a one-way flow, and some Latin American currencies are struggling as COVID-19 numbers rise, particularly in the likes of Brazil and Mexico. Of course, a major boost to sentiment has come from the US May employment report, where the consensus on non-farm payrolls is too weak by a mere 10 million or so. And that's probably the best place to start. So, Mark, employment mm-hmm. up two and a half million on the month, just yeah. ahead of the FOMC meeting. Go on. Uh-huh. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. It doesn't it doesn't uh, all add up. Uh, what's interesting um, Besides the, the size of the enormous miss, uh, uh, the Econoday consensus for that was minus uh, 7.7 million jobs, and it came in at plus 2.5. So that's over a 10 million size miss. What's interesting is that month before that, it was almost exactly on the consensus at uh, minus 20.5 million uh, as the final result. But um, um, it was a complete shock, and it doesn't correlate at all with uh, uh, jobless claims, which have been coming in about 2 million a week. Mm-hmm. And um, so it had the, uh, the forecast sample uh, wasn't even close. The, the most least pessimistic forecaster had it at 3.5 million loss. So even, even on that, that's a 6 million or so miss. Um, it's pretty inexplicable. Um, and we'll have to see, of course, if it's repeated uh, again in the next report. We just had, but there was it's something interesting. Today's uh, Tuesday, we had the Jolts report out, and this is a lagging report produced by the uh, Labor Department for April. What's interesting is it showed a, a sharp decline in job openings, as you, you would expect, but also in April, a sharp decline in hires at the same time. So the difference between the two was a, was still very uh, large in favor of openings by about one and a half million. And, um, and so that's a very strong sign or a positive sign for labor that these openings were, I guess, getting filled. So it's a, it's kind of a, a, a blurry mess right now. And we have also, yeah, go ahead. Can I ask you, in terms of the, because the, the um, employment situation is put together off, off uh, two surveys, isn't it? Establishment yes. one and uh-huh. the house. What did the household survey say about employment? It all it all was also very uh, uh, likewise favorable. That's the one no. that includes the self-employed or uh, uh, people uh, who are contractors uh, who are not on payrolls, and um, that and that's where they calculate the uh, unemployment rate from mm-hmm. because that's the greater uh, size, about 160 million that comes out to, and uh, the unemployment rate there it was supposed to approach 20%, 19.8% was the consensus for us, and it came in at 13.3, so and that was down from 14.7 um, in April, but there's a lot of loose parts going on. The Labor Department has been um, 
I, w- I wouldn't say fudging it, but they're splitting hairs between people who say they're um, uh, unemployed uh, temporarily. They think they're going to get their jobs back, but they're not working. And then there's others who are, are just comp- just unemployed and don't expect to get their jobs back. So this is a kind of a special uh, category that the and they uh, that the household survey. Um, uh, takers now, so the household survey is uh, uh, unlike the payrolls, which is uh, done from um, a payroll uh, data like ADP and those kinds of things. Uh, the household survey is individuals, and so this is a body of survey uh, takers, and um, they and they were saying that there has been miscalculations the last couple of months, and um, on on how to categorize people who aren't sure whether they're going to get their jobs back or not. But if you, if you just, uh, take this category as being un- simply unemployed, then the, uh, unemployment rate goes up about three percentage points. So, it's, so that would be about 16%. And last month or April, the report would have been about 20%. So they're splitting hairs there a little bit. And it's a very messy report at a very critical time, by the way, for economics and history and everything. And for them to be fudging it like this and making it blurry at this moment isn't going to sit well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as far as the reputation of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I mean, you're really just better off taking the last couple of months together and dividing by two. Yes. And actually, probably the, the next month divided by three. Yeah. So. Yeah, but um, what other indications do we have in the labor market? Um, you know, we're talking about the payrolls. ADP didn't see this. ADP has a huge uh, uh, base of payroll data that they use. But what they, but they, uh, uh, they also because of their uh, a lack of uh, of accuracy or predictability, or, or uh, you know, it's a bit on and off the ADP. It, it doesn't correlate entirely well. So what they do is they they go in the past and they include different factors in there and, this, uh, and try to um, come up with, uh, you know, a better uh, score. And what they do is they use the unemployment claims. So as part of their uh, as as part of their calculation, so they were picking up a weakness, not a strength at all. So there was it was completely out of the blue, um, and uh, so we'll see how it goes. Now, of course, that raises the question: Are we already on the recovery? And it, it would seem pretty hard to believe that we're already on the recovery. I mean, we just had. Uh, Red Book retail sales today, and they were down about 10% on the week. And of course, this is the week of the George Floyd uh, looting uh, close uh, store closing. So that may have had uh, a factor there. Um, uh, but in any case, I, you know, I really don't see this huge upsurge uh, uh, ha- happening right now in the economy outside this employment report. So FOMC this week, dovish. Oh, yes, there's not going to be uh, maybe Jerome Powell's characterization of uh, will be less dire of uh, what the outlook is. Um, and I guess that probably has been the trend here with uh, Powell's uh, commentary starting, I think, about April. It was pretty grim and it's been less grim. And um but well, I, well, any in any case for policy, they were already at maximum uh, unlimited uh, uh, QE. 
they've already said they're not going to go, Jerome Powell has ruled out that they're going to go to negative rates. So all they can really do at the meeting is, uh, you know, uh, loan programs, maybe bank regulations, those kinds of things. They're kind of out of it. But let me ask you about... So just, me, just, before we end on, just, just before we end on the policy side, a quick quick, there's been some talk looking across you know, what's been going on in Japan, um, that the Fed, they don't, as you say, they don't want to go negative, but they might possibly consider you know, some kind of yield curve control, given the backup we've seen at the longer end of the market. Is that feasible or is that mm. something not really worth considering at the moment? No, I think that is feasible. That might be a, a question to ask. Certainly, they're um, buying in all different maturities, uh, you know, on the QE. So they, uh, they, you know, it's a. It used to be that they would, you know, confine um, their uh, their their uh, direct buying, but now it's a completely open field. So they might try to. In the past, they wouldn't, you know, they, they would say policy. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't. Uh, they couldn't really control long rates. It was only the short rates they could uh, they could control. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they will expand out to the long rates. But let me ask you about the ECB now. Now, mm. last week they okay. So explain to us their um, their QE program and how it's broken out and how that relates with the with the German ruling. Okay, um, so let's start with the, with the various aspects of quantitative easing as far as the, the ECB is concerned at the moment. So their main asset purchase program, which is probably the one that most people are, are most used to, used to in terms of what actually you know, QE stands for, that was left unchanged. So effective, that means that they will continue to buy 20 billion euros of net asset purchases every month. And it's been like that for a little while now. Um, at the previous meeting, they also announced what they call a temporary envelope uh, of additional QE, uh, which was worth 120 billion uh, flexible purchases sometime between, well, effectively when they first introduced it and the end of the year. So it could vary between different months, whatever it may be, but over the course of the year, that would be worth 120 billion. The ECB last week didn't make any changes to those, those programs. What it did do, though, was to expand its so called pandemic emergency purchase program which it launched back on the 18th of March. Now a market focus had been that if there were going to be a, ch- a change in QE and um, generally speaking speculation was that there would be then it would be expanded by perhaps up to 500 billion from the current three quarters of a trillion. As it turned out they expanded it by more than that by 600 billion which means it now stands at fully 1.35 trillion. So that was comfortably above the upper end of market expectations, in addition to which they've actually extended the horizon for these purchases, which will now run until at least the end of next year. Now, it's important, as I think as we touched on last week, simply because the political background to this. We had this German High Court ruling, which effectively rules most of the ECB's QE um, as being unlawful under German's constitution. So there's a big battle at the moment between the ECB and this German court involving the European Court to justice as to basically whether or not the uh, the ECB can continue to do what it's doing at the moment. However, this German ruling did not include anything to do with directly compensating for COVID-19 effects, which meant effectively if the ECB wanted to expand QE, it could do it through this pandemic emergency purchase program, the so-called PEP, which is what it opted to do. So I think normally I must say I'm not overly impressed with the way the ECB responds because it tends to be very much reaction rather than being proactive. But this time around they've come out, they send a clear message that look, we 
want to increase QE. They don't want to stir the political pot by all means, but by doing it through the PEP, by doing more than the market anticipated, it was taken extremely well, particularly by those um, those peripheral Eurozone markets like Italy and Spain and Greece, uh, which generally speaking, suffer more when we have the big downturns and really need the, need the extra help. And the more money will be allocated in their direction. And also just by doing anything at all, it's helped to underline the ECB's attitude, look, we're an independent central bank and we're going to do what we think is right. And it's quite often been the case in the past that you know the ECB's made an announcement and the market reaction is being well, is that it? Well, in this case, it was very well received by the Eurozone, by the Euro, I should say, because it was taken as being providing potentially a decent boost for the Eurozone economy. It was taken extremely well by these peripheral markets because it's going to boost the buying of the likes of the BTPs and so on. So all in all, it was a good result and a pat on the back, I think, as far as the ECB is concerned. Do you think it's a a policy offset to the lack of... uh of fiscal uh, help on, on I these do, Yeah, I think that's a very, very fair point. I think the ECB sometimes must be scratching its head. I mean, for so long, I mean, going back to the days of Draghi, um, the number of times at the press conference, uh, the, the president would come out and say, of course, what we're doing now has to be um, work hand in hand with a more expansionary fiscal policy and for those governments, bottom line, Germany, you know, which, which have room for fiscal reflation, they should really be going out and giving you economy a helping hand and i think we're in the same kind of boat now yes we've got this this new um was it eu uh, next eu generation fund which the eu commission is trying to get through the parliaments at the moment but that's going to take time it's still got resistance from some members and the ecb must be taking the view well look if nobody else is going to do it we're going to have to throw whatever we can at it and indeed i think from the the tone of the press conference itself and the and the minutes of the meeting well these protect the official statement i should say yeah, you know, the inference there was, well, look, you know, we're doing all this, and if it's not enough, we'll probably do more. Do you see, uh, to uh, change the subject now, any sign, and get back to the employment report, uh, do you see any signs of, of a V-shape coming out of European data? No, not really. I'm nothing. Um, clearly, I'm really we're only just starting to get through uh, the hard April data, and all we can say about that at the moment is it's going to be blooming horrible. Um, we just had German industrial production for April that was down 17.9 percent. You know, surprise, surprise, a record uh, on a month-on-month basis. Uh, it's down 25.3 percent year on year. Now they are horrible numbers, but fair enough. You might think, well, the lockdown started to be eased to some extent as we move towards. You know, the end of April and into May. So the May numbers might look a lot better. However, you know, even though we had output down, we industrial production down just over 25%, orders fell even more. And year on year, orders are now down getting on for 40% or so. So currently, as quickly as production is being paired back, you know, p- pent up demand demand ready in the pipeline is falling even faster. And it's the same kind of thing we're seeing coming out pretty well right across the Eurozone at the moment. So I think in terms of V-shaped recovery, it's hard, I think, certainly for Europe to find anyone who's looking down that road. Expectations are that, yes, output has fallen so far that as we do get more and more relaxations of the restrictions coming through, the shops are opening, um, people will be allowed to go out and shop that much more. Factories are gradually starting to reopen. 
we will necessarily start to see output and demand go up. But we'll be going up from such an unprecedentedly low level that you know, the idea of a V-shaped recovery to get back to where we were before mm-hmm. COVID-19 struck, well, it really seems to be par in the sky to me. Are there any anecdotal uh, weekly uh, reports, uh, news reports, uh, man in the street reports, uh, how the reopenings are affecting retail in Europe? Not much so far. Um, we had some uh, one of these sort of surveys from the re- from the UK this morning, which suggests that retail sales were still falling, um, as far as May is concerned, but certainly not as quickly as April, which you would you know you kind of expect. And there's been various stories coming out of individual you know sellers suggesting that you know May across much of Europe, particularly in Germany, will be a good deal better than it was in April. But again, you know we've still got social distancing and all these various constraints on how consumers can operate at the moment and that will necessarily restrict you know just how quickly you know even if they want to go out and spend how much they can actually do you know any particular time and in general from the surveys surveys i've seen within europe and particularly true of the uk there is still uh, a very much a real concern about you know about safety aspects about how safe it is to go out and try and resu- resume a normal life given the fact that you know, for a lot of european countries as good as the covid19 numbers may be at the moment but are still new cases being recorded. As long as that's the case, of course, you know, if you're a if you're a shopper, a consumer, there's still the risk you could actually contract something. Well, you know, I guess we're all still subject to these um, these virus uh, readings, and if they do pick up uh, back up, then the V shape might just go out the window. However, if they do remain low, and if the social distancing does work, and and we're able to produce goods and services and and buy good goods and services. Um, still, though, you would think it would be take quite a long time for the yeah. economy to heal here, you know, if, you know, so. Definitely. In fact, it's interesting talking about that. I saw um, a survey come out of uh, Switzerland earlier on um, today looking at um, productivity rates as a result of COVID-19. I've got to be honest, I can't remember the precise number from the top of my head, but essentially productivity rates in Switzerland uh, since COVID-19 struck have been gone up around about 16% or so, something like that, which means that you know, workers effectively are working more efficiently now uh, working from home and everything else than they were previously. And that kind of, you know, I think you know, is going to set the scene for how the world economy works as we go forward. There will be more people working at home. Less time will be spent trying to travel from home to your place of work, where, of course, that's possible. And we will see a completely different structure. And mm. another interesting thing I saw looking at Europe, which is one of the issues that I think the, the European Commission will be partly trying to address in this this new fund it's bringing out. And that was just as well, 17 percent of businesses in Europe was the European Union with uh, less than 250 50 employees selling online. So only about 17 percent of businesses, I should say, with less than 250 employees in, 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 the, in the European Union uh, are actually working online. So there's this huge market, which at the moment, you know, Europe really isn't tapping into. You know, we're kind of a long way behind you know, the digitalization of, hmm. you know, of, the, of the service side, the retail side, compared to perhaps the likes. I, mean, I don't know the equivalent numbers in the States, but I suspect it'd be a good deal higher. Hmm. Yeah, I, I guess about e-commerce, it represents about 10 percent. If I remember the numbers right, it's been going up, but I think it's maybe about 10 percent of uh, total retail sales. Uh if not a little bit more, what's it uh, in Europe? You think? Do they do they have that number? 
Off the top of my head, I don't know. I know certainly in terms of in terms of UK retail sales, it's been running around about 20% or so, something 20%. like that. 20%? Wow. Yeah, it's been gradually creeping up, and the COVID side has actually picked up quite significantly. But I think UK is quite well ahead of most of Europe. Yeah, this data I'm talking about in the US is a quarterly, so we haven't seen what the, the COVID effect would be. But we do see non-store re- uh, sales in um, the retail sales report, and that is mostly e-commerce, and that has uh, shot higher. So, yeah. Right. In terms of COVID, I suppose we quickly mention good old Brexit, since um, really, I guess, you know, the, the potential impact on the UK economy and indeed the uh, the, the European, the, the EU economy as well, uh, of a no deal Brexit is, you know, is that much potentially more significant now, simply because we have the coronavirus bringing about the damage of it, of it, of its own. So in terms of these talks, the fourth round of talks this year, um, got underway last week and finished last Friday and to all intents and purposes made no progress at all. And the worry, I think, for markets, and I say it's worthwhile remembering that Brexit is still lurking in the background, is that um, the UK has until the end of this month uh, to request an extension of this transition period that we're in at the moment, which runs until the end of this year. If they don't ask for it by the end of this month, and Boris Johnson is saying he's not interested in extension, he's not going to do it. It's an effective just leaves, what, the best part of six months or so, and probably less than that, because it's going to be ratified by European parliaments, um, to actually get some kind of trade deal thrashed out between the UK or and the EU, or the UK, which has already left the EU, but is still trading as if it hadn't, come the beginning of next year, it will be completely on its own. And no trade deal is going to mean higher prices for the UK, higher prices for the rest for the European Union as well, because we'll revert to some kind of world trade um, organisation um, tariffs. So, I mean, it's going to be, you know, it could well be as we saw for so much of the last couple of years, the you know, performance of the pound and the gilt market, UK stock market, was simply tighter. Are we going to get Brexit? Will it be a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit? Brexit. All this stuff about, well, at least a hard Brexit and a soft Brexit, that's going to start coming back again, particularly over the second half of this year. So expect sterling to become increasingly volatile. Was the Bre- was Brexit an issue for the ECB last week? Did it pop up anywhere? Not as far as I know. I must say, listening to um, Lagarde's press conference, I didn't actually hear her mention it. But certainly, I mean, prior to, I mean, Brexit actually taking place. Brexit was a regular comment in terms of you know, the downside risk to the eurozone, if do the eurozone economy or the ECB meetings. And I suspect you know we'll start to see it being you know, cropping up in a conversation and, and the minutes as we go through uh, the rest of uh, 2020. Now, how are the travel quarantines? Uh, now uh, the UK has one, right? Uh, well, it's a bit one? it's a bit in the air at the moment. In theory. Um, UK quarantines came in at the beginning of this week, at least on Monday, which meant anyone effectively flying in or travelling into the UK um, would have to quarantine for two weeks. However, there's been a huge backlash against it, particularly by um, all the airports and the airlines, which essentially saying, well, look, if you do that, then the UK tourist industry is completely down the pan because someone's coming over a two week holiday. They're not going to want to spend it quarantining and just to get on the plane to go back home again. So it looks as if that's going to be changed. Um, what, what about the UK um, going out to, um, you know, the Mediterranean uh, for holiday? Well, it's, that's mixed at the moment. I mean, in some cases, um, some of these southern med countries have opened up to parts of Europe 
but not not the UK because the UK COVID numbers have been higher than the likes you've seen in in Germany and those other countries where the numbers have come down more rapidly. Um, but again, it's still the case if you're a UK traveller, let's say you want to go out to Athens for a holiday for a couple of weeks, when you come back, you're going to have to self quarantine for two weeks again. So a holiday which perhaps you've got two weeks is suddenly going to have to be four weeks. So it's it's difficult at the moment. I can see what the government's trying to do is trying to stop you know, the reimportation of new coronavirus cases. But at the same time, it's it's the risk is it's going to crucify a big swathe of UK industry. Well, uh, yeah. So accommodation and leisure. and Yeah, and exactly that. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah difficult times, but that's true of everyone at the moment. OK. Um, is there anything else we should be mentioning? No, is we talked about Brexit, so that we must did. be the end. That's got it, yeah. Brexit, yes. Take, take the BR off the front of it. Okay, then. Well said. Let's call it a day four today, then. Um, we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, remember, you can keep up to date with all the key data and events in Econoday's Global Economic Calendar. So from Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.